There are few people in the world who know as much about where words come from as Mark Forsyth. His first book, The Etymologicon, was a journey through the origins of many common words and their connections. And he has since written various other books about words, language, and writing. In this interview, Mark tells fascinating and entertaining stories about where words come from, how to remember them, and how to use those words to be a better communicator. I hope you enjoy it. Mr. Mark Forsyth, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Just before we begin, uh, for people who don't know you and your work, could you just explain a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm an author. I write books. And I, my first three books were about the history of the English language in some sense or another. My first book was called The Etymological. And it was all about uh, the strange stories behind English words and the etymology, which is where a word comes from, where, where, how, it's, how it's derived. But it's mainly the, the funny stories, because a lot of the words have these utterly ridiculous and absurd and funny origins. And so I just wanted to write about them. I'd be writing a, a blog originally about them and, and just stories that amused me. And then I, I wove them all together into a book and, and it did well. And so publishers wanted another book. So I, my second one was called The Horological, which was about strange words that um, exist in the English language. You'll find them in a dictionary somewhere, but um, people have forgotten them. They've fallen out of use and uh, they uh, words that amused me, things like that. There's, there's an actual real Anglo-Saxon word, an old English word, from, uh, therefore from over a thousand years ago, um, utkeara, which literally means lying awake before dawn, not being able to get back to sleep because you're so worried about the day to come. It's literally pre-dawn care. And it's, you know, it's a feeling I've had many, many times. And it's just lovely to know that there, was, there once was a word for this, or the fear of ergophobia, ergophobia the fear of um, going to work, which I suffer from immensely. <laughs> and, um, uh, and also just sort of sometimes beautiful sounding words like wamble cropped, which is, uh, <laughs> so it used to be that if you, um, if you had indigestion, that was a touch of the wambles. And if it was, um, or wombles, and if it was so bad that you couldn't stand up, you were, you were felt by them, they, you were said to be womble cropped or wamble cropped. And it's just a, such a lovely word, uh, lovely word to say. And then my third book was uh, about the figures of rhetoric. It's called The Elements of Eloquence. And uh, the figures of rhetoric are ways of arranging a sentence to make it more memorable more beautiful um, without having anything to say at all so uh, for, for example there's one just give you an idea of what a figure is uh, there's a figure of rhetoric called diacopy which is when you say uh, a b a one word then another word then the first word again so bond james bond or home sweet home or burn baby burn or captain my captain or uh, it goes <laughs> game over baby game over um, to be or not to be all of these are basically the, the, the same structure, and there's, that, there's, there's a name for that structure, the Acte. And uh, you, there, there are many of these structures, so I thought I'd write a, a, whole, a whole book about them and how they've been used across time and across literature. Wow. And then since then, you've, you've written some other books, right? I know that recently you published a book about drunkenness. 
yes, yes. Uh, so after that, I did, I did a very short book about um, bookshops and how lovely it is to go into a real bookshop and find by chance a beautiful book. Um, beautiful book. That, that, that's very short on It's called The Unknown Unknown. And then I did one on the history of Christmas and the origins of Christmas traditions. Um, and then my last one was A History of Drunkenness, Short History of Drunkenness, it's called, uh, which has been translated to loads of languages, which is nice, because <laughs> something I should have noticed earlier on when I was writing books about the English language, obviously they're all untranslatable, really. they've never been attempted. They wrote about drunkenness and it's this universal subject. So um, it's, it's great because uh, you don't get any, you don't have to do any work and it suddenly keeps being published again and again. Um, is which is about how people got drunk in different times and places. So if you were in ancient Egypt and you wanted to get uh, sloshed, what, what did you do? Where did you go? What were you drinking? Who were you drinking with? And when? What time of day were women allowed? Was it with your friends or family or um, so on and so forth? And, and yeah, how did that apply if you're in ancient Rome or uh, in a, what was a Wild West saloon actually like? And what did drunkenness mean in all these different cultures? Uh, which is a fascinating question because I, I, I love drinking myself, um, but I've never been quite sure what it is that we're doing when we're drinking. Why, why are we doing this? Well, I think um, anybody who who has an interest in drinking, uh, so that's you know basically all all of the British population and well most of Europe should should probably read the book, right? Uh, yeah, yes, indeed, Australia. <laughs> one of my- one of my favourite facts uh, you know, I discovered was that Australia was actually founded as a dry colony. That was the idea. There would be no booze ever in Australia. How things have changed. <laughs> uh, all the great plans in history. That's, that's the one that really, <laughs> really went down badly. Can you tell me about when you realised that you were first interested in language? I think I always have been. I sometimes answer this uh, by saying I got a copy of the Oxford English Dictionary as a Christmas present and I've never recovered that. Uh, it's just, it's the thing, I'm, I'm interested in anything which is very familiar, so familiar that we don't stop and think about it. So in that sense, I'm interested in drunkenness and language are the, the same insofar as everybody talks and then everybody, well not almost everybody, drinks, but we don't stop and say, where does that word come from? Why, why, I'll just to give you an example of a, 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 a simple epic. Uh, etymology, you know, why are you a fan of something? It's a you know, simple term, but why are you a fan? It's, it's just short for fanatic. So except we tend to use fanatic about um, terrorists and crazy people, and we use fan about people who like um, pop groups, but uh, yeah, fan is short for fanatic. Uh, the, these simple points or why, uh, one, one that's always fascinated me is why you use the same word for different things. So there's a strange collection of, oh, I'll give you an example, buffalo. There's an animal, a buffalo. We all know what a buffalo is. And um, there used to be a lot of buffalo leather was used for polishing things. And also people made clothes out of it. And uh, it was always shortened to buff. So it was buff leather. And so um, uh, when you, uh, uh, when you uh, study something, you, you, you buff up on it. <laughs> well, when you polish something, you, you buff it. And that's why we still have the term, you've been to the gym a lot and you've got lots of muscles. Um, and you said, you're looking really buff, you're looking good, you're looking shiny, like something that's just been polished. But you also have the Victorians uh, used to, uh, you could wear buffalo leather and it's approximately the same color as skin. 
as so when if you're wearing buffalo leather it sort of looks like you're naked which is why we still have the phrase he's in the buff meaning he's naked and then weird one uh, one lot of uh people who wore buffalo leather in the 19th century that's what firefighters wore they wore uh, buffalo leather suits because it's uh, good for you know, uh, keeping the flames off and it's a strange thing but in um in New York in the late 19th century, people loved to go and watch fires and firefighters fighting fires. And it's what little boys did in a way you might admire a sportsman or something. Everyone would be a fire, everyone would run over and watch the, uh, watch the firefighters. And boys would have their favorite firefighters and they'd go, oh, he's my, he's my hero. And they were so keen on it that they became known as fire buffs, which meant they were enthusiasts. And that's why you still have a film buff these days or a music buff. It's the same buff, but they're all short for buffalo, which is just a strange, weird connection between looking buff in the buff and buffing up on something and being a film buff. Wow. I mean, um, well, I actually have this. This was the first book of yours that I ever read. This was how I, I got to know you, the, the Etymologicon. And um, I think when I was reading it, this was something that surprised me, how, um, how, how words can, can end up in strange places. But when you follow the story, it's, it's quite logical in a way. And, and I'm wondering if, because a majority of my audience, they're people learning a foreign language. And I don't know if you have any experience learning a foreign language. I mean, I, I've learned, to some extent, uh, uh, French and Spanish and German. My German is very, very regular. Okay. Uh, and I'm wondering um, if you kind of think that these learning these stories you know, learning the origins of the word might actually help you to kind of remember them. Oh, yes, it probably would. And also it, it means that often you can, you might discover a cognate that you haven't really thought of before once you see that, um, once you see the connection. I, I don't know, but if, for example, let's take the word amateur. I've always liked this. Well, why is amateur amateur? And it's because if you are an amateur, if you're doing it for nothing, you're doing it for love. That's what an amateur is. It's it's a lover, and it comes from the same the same root, therefore, as amare in Latin, uh, aime in French, um, uh, uh, te amo in in Spanish. Um, it's it's all all that 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 same thing. Well, once you've seen that, then the word amateur makes perfect sense. Uh, uh, as you're doing, you're a lover. You do it for nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, that that does. I mean, I'm sure that anybody watching this who maybe you know that word wasn't kind of immediately available to them if they think about doing it for love it's it helps to to to, to you know make the word more familiar kind of instantly right yeah yeah so in some sometimes uh, especially if you find this in scandinavia if you're an english speaker um there are certainly words which are close cognates but you don't quite see that the second somebody points out what the what the what the sentence means you can you can see it so um I remember being with a Norwegian friend of mine in Oslo and there was a sign by the side of the road about Tre Fella or something. And um, I forget precisely. And I, I asked what the sign meant and he said, oh, they're, they're chopping the trees down. And I realized it was tree felling was going on. It's uh, perfectly simple English, but to just slightly disguised. And the same thing, sometimes I like to um, uh, just uh, try and learn a language very briefly, not in, not with the intention of ever becoming fluent, um, but just to see what it's like. And I often do that when, if I'm just going to visit somewhere. So I, I, I had that, I, I learned Danish for three weeks before visiting Denmark. 
I didn't actually use it at all because everybody in Denmark speaks utterly perfect English. <laughs> and because even even in you know little shops or something, you go in there with it, they, they just ask me in English. And um, but it was lovely seeing the the the, the, the cognates and working out. Uh, uh, yes, Danish is the closest language to English, just about. Yeah, I think I think that's really cool, actually. Um, and it's something that that I tell a lot of a lot of people who are learning a language is that. You know, your objective doesn't always have to be, you know, fluent, like ready to do international business. You know, like you can just learn a language just for a bit of fun, you know, dip in, learn some interesting facts. And that's that's great. You know, see what it's like. I did that with Chinese once. I mean, I've never actually been to China at all, but I, 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 I've been because I read lots of books about linguistics. I've heard things like Chinese doesn't have grammar. And I was thinking, how does a language work without grammar? And so I sat down, I started um learning Chinese I mean I got nowhere I did it for a month or so um but I I saw that there there is indeed no grammar the, the verbs never change it's I he you we all all have the same thing as it there and there aren't tenses either in these you so it's I ate uh, so it's I eat he eat they eat yesterday they eat it's all always the same verb which is amazing for if you <laughs> learned English or especially if like me, I learned Latin at school and the Spanish and all those irregular verbs. The notion that a verb never changes, you just learn one word, that's it. Done. It's like, oh my God, if only Latin had been like that. <laughs> it's fabulous, right? And, and you know, for, for me, it's interesting to see how your first language affects the way that you speak, um, you know, any other languages you learn. Like, you know, a lot of people who speak Mandarin, when they speak English, they don't conjugate their verbs because... It's not something that comes naturally to them, you know? Yes, no concept of it. And, and I mean, similarly for an English person, when I try and learn uh, other languages, gender is always always a nightmare. So you have to learn the word and then this extraneous fact about the word. You know, is it masculine or feminine? Well, why is it la fenêtre or whatever it happens to be, the, the window? Why are windows female? Well, what's going on if only there were a pattern? And there, there is no pattern. And then it's even harder for um, uh, the reason my German is so ropey is that um, uh, if you see what I mean, if you give me five minutes, I can come up with a good German sentence, a correct German sentence. But it's trying to remember what form of the word the to use because they're definitely hard because daddy, das, dandy, das, etc. So you, when I'm trying to think of a German sentence, like you, you're running through and you're going, okay, what gender is that? Okay, now it's got this preposition before it. Else by mimic that, like von Sue, all take the dative, so it's the dative feminine. And it, it, it takes me 30 seconds to work out how to say the word the. Um, uh, so, <laughs> which means I can't really speak German, <laughs> but <laughs> unless you give me five minutes between each, each sentence. Um, but yes, it's, it's very hard to get those, those strange concepts, but I mean, you know, the reverse happens. Yeah, of course, like English has some, some kind of weird things, for example, with, with prepositions that are, to, to languages which don't have prepositions are, just seem like a nightmare. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason. Why is it in or on or out? You know, I, I can understand it from both perspectives. Phrasal verbs, which are so easy to um, a native speaker and just make no sense to uh, to a, a non-native speaker, with the difference between mucking in, mucking up, mucking around. <laughs> mucking out. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> so I, I was wondering um, if maybe you could uh, give some examples of some of your your kind of favorite etymologies, like some of the maybe more interesting or crazy stories about some words. Okay, here, here's one. There's a a food company in America in the 1930s started making some a tinned meat product, you know, spiced ham essentially. So they shortened it and they called it Spam. And Spam was sold in um, shops all over the place, just tinned meat. And you can still buy Spam in the shops today. Um, and then when the, uh, the Second World War happened and the, the Britain had a massive food shortage and these convoys had to come over from America to Britain, um, loaded with food and obviously it needed to be preserved so tin food was best and they wanted lots of meat so um, actually those convoys, those Atlantic convoys had were filled with tins of Spam and this was the survival food of the British and as a result it became part of the British diet and especially of uh, the cheap British diet from, from then on so in, uh, in the uh, cheap cafes, the ones we call uh, greasy spoons Sort of workman's cafe where you go get a cheap meal they served lots of spam and as a result of that there was a monty python sketch where a guy goes into a greasy spoon and uh, says what do you have on the menu and she says we've got grilled spams fried spam roast spam spam with spam spam on the side spam and and goes on like that and then for some reason because it's monty python because it's surreal um, there are some Vikings in the background who start singing um, uh, this song. They go, spam, 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 and they won't stop. It goes on and on forever. Because of that Monty Python sketch, there was in the early days of the internet, the very early days of the internet, um, uh, in uh, the 1980s, there was a, a, a practical joke people would play on each other of I'd, I'd send you a computer program, and the first line of the computer program was um, print the word spam on the screen. And the second line of the program was go back to the first line. So if you ran that program, your screen would just go spam, 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 spam on and on forever, like in the Monty Python sketch. And because of that, the word spam started meaning any email you got that you didn't want to get, oh no, that's don't, don't press run on that, it's a spam email and your screen will just and not go to spam. And that's why you have spam emails still. Um, as your spam folder on my email account, there is a spam folder and you use spam emails, and we're all familiar with that. And meanwhile, meanwhile, this original spiced ham food product is still in the supermarkets. And it, <laughs> but the meaning has gone via the Second World War and Monty Python and the invention of the internet to mean a complete different word spam email. What what are some what are some great resources that students can can use to to kind of research the etymology of words to to find them out? The the very best one is um, etymonline. It's called um, so that's e t y m o n l i n e, and that's an online etymological dictionary. It's extremely reliable. It's very well researched um, and gives you pretty much everything you need. But that's always my and it's free. It's always my first port of call. If you um, have access to it, then the Oxford English Dictionary is um, uh, the ultimate reference work. It's bigger, it gives all of its sources, it's huge, because the actual Oxford English Dictionary full thing is 
um, 26 volumes. So it's a massive, massive thing. Uh, if you are at a university, then your university library may well have a subscription. Otherwise, you have to um, uh, pay some uh, amount per year. Or if you have a if you have a, uh, a, a local library card in Britain, you can um, use the Oxford English Dictionary for free using the um, the number on the library card. Um, uh, those those are the two main ones. There's, I, I believe, there's also. I don't use it much. That there is uh, Wiktionary on uh, the on the internet, um, which does uh, many different languages. So that may be more useful to your viewers. Okay, and 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 when people um, hear stories about word origins, how how do they know whether or not those stories are true? Because you know, like. Like, for example, there's so many stories about where the word OK came from, and most of them are, are false, for example. Um, so how, what, what are some techniques people can use to detect a false etymology? <laughs> the first one is, um, the rule of thumb is, if, if people say it's an acronym, um, then it's almost certainly not. Uh, that's, that's, that's the one that always uh, goes around. Uh, there are a couple which really are acronyms like laser and scuba, but almost everything is not an acronym. Uh, the, the best would be simply to check it on item online. Um, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> uh, it's, it's strange because they do go around an awful lot. And I, I often have the embarrassing thing of somebody uh, uh, when I explain to people what I do and they say, oh, have you heard the story of this? And I have to go... Yeah, yeah, I have that. that. That's nonsense. And you feel sort of bad taking people down. So I, I try not to do it. But um, yeah, there's, a, there's an awful lot of silly stories uh, floating around, which is strange because usually the real story is um, just as ridiculous, if you see what I mean. You, uh, yeah, you can involve the Second World War and Monty Python and the internet or whatever it happens to be. And these, these extraordinary connections I mean, also, there's, a, there's one which I've always liked, um, which is uh, in an Indian restaurant, you can get a naan, naan bread itself, because it's the, uh, I think it's the early, yes, early Hindi, I can't quite remember the matter. The thing is, so all of the languages are basically from Western Europe all the way across to Northern India, almost all of the languages are uh, our cousins, they're all derived from an original language, which we can sort of reconstruct, which is known as Proto-Indo-European. Once upon a time, somewhere around the Black Sea, there were some people who spoke this language. And then in a, about five, six thousand years ago, they expanded massively and they must have gone out invading. Nobody can quite work out why. And... Uh, as they separated, their dialects separated, they started speaking with stronger accents, etc. And then the languages so became mutually incomprehensible, which is why the direct descendants of those people who are down in England speak English. And uh, but if you're in northern India, you are speaking uh, uh, Urdu or Hindi. And they're, they're, but they are related languages all, all the way across. And, Italian and Greek and Russian. Uh, they, there are some which are uh, are different, like um, Finnish is different, and um, uh, the Semitic languages like Arabic and Hebrew. But um, largely, they're all the same. So, a, a beautiful one is that in that original language, there seems to have been a word, something like uh, nag, which meant uh, uncovered, naked, and 
uh, down in, uh, into the, uh, the, the European languages, that became, well, it went into the Germanic ones and then to English as naked, it, uh, which is quite similar. You can see how now nacht. Um, and then went into the uh, Romance languages like Latin, Italian as uh, nude. And that's where the word nude comes from. A slightly posher uh, word for naked, but it's, it's just the same thing. But in um, Persia, they would um, cook meat. They would cook their meat by burying it within in charcoal, which would uh, uh, cook meat very well. But the bread you cooked on the top uncovered. And so they called their bread, the uncovered stuff, they called it naan. And that then went into uh, the Indian languages as naan, which is why naan and naked are ultimately, as it were, the same word, just separated by 5,000 years. <laughs> 5,000 years. So so next time I go to an Indian restaurant and order my, my naked garlic, my na it's, <laughs> I'm going to appreciate it even more. So it's the same with um, uh, uh, Pun. So uh, the um, Punjab in northern India is the land of five rivers. That's what Punjab means. But that same Pun is in um, the pen in Pentagon. And so therefore the name of the... Um, uh, the building where the American military headquarters are is the Pentagon and the Punjab. It's the same pen. I, I love the, that sort of connection. Wow, crazy. Um, so I thought we could kind of move on now and talk a little bit more about the third book you wrote, which was The, the Elements of Eloquence, which is more about um, about basically how to kind of write well in English, you know, how to... The Secrets, yes, an amazing book. Um I think that, that that should be compulsory instead of, um, instead of uh, um, oh my God, what's it called? Um, <laughs> uh, the Elements of Style, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, which is, which is full of terrible, terrible writing advice, in my opinion. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm not going to draw. <laughs> don't worry, you don't have to say anything about that. Um, <laughs> no, um... And I'm wondering if, if we just we, you could give some examples of some ways that that people could could use some of these techniques to to, to write some more interesting sentences. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Well, I, I gave you the example of Dafne earlier on, but uh, another nice one is uh, progressio, which is uh, a, a very simple form to, to work out. It's uh, basically if you uh, in the Bible, there's a bit in the Bible. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three, which has this beautiful sonorous passage where it says, um, uh, there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep and a time to rejoice, a time to build up and a time to scatter, a time to reap and uh, a time to sow and time to reap. And it's one thing and then it's opposite. And if you think about it, you could just say, well, there's a time for everything, but it's a, a much nicer way of saying exactly that is to have all these long, Opposites, and you have the same thing in um, Charles Dickens, who in probably the most famous passage he wrote, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, it's the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. One thing, then it's opposite, one thing, then it's opposite. And then you have the, the same thing with uh, the Katy Perry song, Hot and Cold. You're hot, then you're cold, you're yes, then you're no, you're up, then you're down, you're no. Or in the, the Beatles song, um, Hello, Goodbye, you say stop, I say go, you say. Um, uh, uh, you say goodbye, I say hello. It's uh, just keep saying one thing and it's often, you say tomato, I say tomato, you say potato, I say potato. 
uh, just keep doing one thing in its opposite. And you don't actually say anything at all, but it sounds great. It sounds wonderful. You, know, you get to be like Paul McCartney or um, Charles Dickens or God or Katy Perry, whichever it is you prefer out of those people. <laughs> I know who I'm choosing. <laughs> so, um, but, but obviously these, these techniques must be used with care because... If you if you overuse them, like especially if you have a low level in a language, you know maybe that that kind of that sense of repetition or that that these techniques could maybe come across as as just bad language instead of deliberate technique. Uh, I suppose they could. Yes, I mean it's always you have to be very careful in other languages. I always find that um, I, I never ever swear in other languages because you can never work out exactly. Uh, how bad this word is and is it appropriate to this situation so I just just absolutely leave it um but uh yes uh it's it's uh, a slightly yes slightly advanced elements of eloquence but uh yes it, it can the these and but the, also these techniques can be used in any language really I mean, my one is all the examples are famous phrases in English but uh, for example, I mean, there, there's one which is the very simple, no, 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 uh, yeah, repeat a word three times. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, that's really simple. But, you know, King Lear has this famous line where he says, how, how, how. Um, Margaret Thatcher said, um, uh, no, no, no. Um, Tony Blair said, education, education, education. And then the, the, these are all famous lines which are now in the, the dictionary of quotations. Um, so, so it can be incredibly simple using this. It's, it's, it, it is it is interesting. It seems it seems almost childish, but there's something about the power. Maybe as well, there's something about the power of things coming in threes. Uh, yes, there is. It's called the tricolon. I, I don't know why threes are so powerful, but but they are. Or the power of um just starting. I mean, uh, starting every sentence in with the same words. So it's called. Uh, anaphora is uh, we shall fight them on the beaches, we shall fight them in the fields, we shall fight them. But you just start each sentence with the same words. And it, it works here, it works there, it works in France, it works in Italy. You, you, it, uh, it's, it's a great way of just reinforcing the point and sounding more convincing than you uh, you are. Yeah. So, so, so what about some of the other maybe more um, elaborate kind of techniques? Can you give me an example of one of those? Uh, well, there's chiasmus, which is a very nice one, which is when you uh, try and reverse, essentially reverse the order of the words in um, two different uh, sentences. So ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Or mankind must put an end to war, or war will put an end to mankind. T for two and two for T. It's, uh, it's a, a beautiful technique. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. It's um, uh, makes a memorable phrase, but it's also usually involves a little bit of wordplay, and it's a, it's a bit more elaborate and harder to do. Yeah, yeah, um, and that, that sort of brings me to to my next question, which is, if 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 somebody wants to be a better writer, because um, there's 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 a famous quote which has been attributed to various different people, probably none of them said it, uh, which was, if you want to be a better writer, you need to sit down at the typewriter and bleed. And, and I'm wondering how you feel about the idea that being a good writer is just about kind of practice. 
rather than maybe deliberate kind of study of techniques? Uh, I think it's it's both. I mean, I don't think the bleeding, the, the, the whole suffering thing, I, I've I've never really come across. If, if you sit down with a typewriter and bleed, get up from a typewriter, there's something very wrong with your typewriter. Um, uh, yes, uh, I, I would say you need to stu uh, study um, grammar, punctuation. I mean, a lot of English people don't know uh, their own grammar because it's not really taught to us in school because it comes completely naturally. I mean, the same thing actually, oddly enough, applies to a lot of German people don't know their own, well, are unable to explain their own grammar because it's incredibly complicated, but they, they've just grown up with it, so they don't know it and they haven't had to learn it in the way I was talking about earlier. Um, yes, you should know your grammar and your punctuation, everything like that. And then, yes, uh, practice and then things like, yeah, the figures of rhetoric. I mean, that's why I wrote the elements of eloquence somebody those some books have been written on in that there have been very few in the last few hundred years but shakespeare learned to um learned all the figures of rhetoric that's basically what you had to learn at school 400 years ago was you had these figures of rhetoric beaten into you he would have learned them though oddly enough on latin but they also work in english yeah i mean is there any um is there any um, kind of understanding as to why we find these techniques so attractive? Not really, no. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's ever been any research into it. Things they just work, and the the funny thing is, they used to be um, taught deliberately. As I say, Shakespeare would have learnt these by by heart, and then in the nineteenth century, you got this romantic idea of um, that. Uh, poetry should just come to you, and you're. And also, you have a lot of people who are suspicious of rhetoric because they say, "Oh, well, it just makes bad ideas sound good. That's just rhetoric. That's just fine words." And where are the actions? Um, so it's been very unfashionable for a couple of hundred years, but it still works. I mean, that's why Paul McCartney and Katy Perry clean up because. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 these lines still, uh, these techniques still really work on us. We like those, those repetitions and those rhythms. For anybody who's, who's trying to improve their writing, what's that kind of balance between, you know, spending a lot of time actually writing and just practicing maybe the idea of just producing and getting your thoughts onto paper and, and the balance between that and then kind of saying, okay, I'm going to look at this sentence and I'm going to try and make it, fit this this technique or well, i think of it like um a bit like jazz actually um so i think that if you do lots of practice then when it comes to it when inspiration arrives then you will be ready to to go in the same way that it, uh, uh, if you want to be a, a great jazz musician you have to learn a lot of scales and an awful lot of music theory and play and play it and that means that when you come out on the stage and start just improvising with a band and they're all improvising and you bounce off each other, you're brilliant because you've done so much practice. And similarly, I think uh, certainly when I'm writing my books, I, I write them very quickly, actually. But that's because um, I've done an awful lot of practice and I can therefore just let it flow. Well, I hope that's the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for anybody kind of interested, would, do you... Do you maybe have like uh, like a plan, like just a piece of paper with some bullet points? Is that how you 
Are these things floating around in your mind for months before you actually sit down to, to write? I have a piece of paper with uh, bullet points. Well, I do all my research. I, I mean, when I'm writing a book, I do all my, all my research. I take lots of notes. I make sure I know the subject backwards, forwards, and side, sideways before I start the chapter. And then just go. And I have, yes, a few bullet points. A vague notion of what I've got to say and where I'm ending up. I always think it's a good idea to have to know where you're going is the most important thing in writing. There was one writer, I can't remember who it was, famous author, who would always write the last line of his novel first and then just pin it up on the wall behind the typewriter. So he always knew where he was aiming. I'm aiming at that line there and about 60,000 words of time I'm going to get there. (laughs) Wow, that, interesting. I mean, you've 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 self-described, uh, I believe, as as a pedant, <laughs> um, and so I'm sort of wondering uh, again about this balance. How, how do you feel about the balance between maybe following some of these grammar rules that people got taught at school, like you know, don't end a sentence with a preposition, never start a sentence with and, you know, all that kind of. Don't split your infinitive. You know, how do you feel about the balance between that and creativity like playing with language being inventive i'm all for the playing and first of all every single rule you just stated there isn't a rule it, it's it's wrong these are such this is such stuff as dreams are made on to quote shakespeare on yes uh, it ends the sentence with a preposition it, they're, 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 i don't know how that rule got thought up or how it came about but if you think of it, we're talking only about phrasal verbs you would be able to use any phrasal verb in the imperative you wouldn't be able to say, look out, get down, we're being fired on. <laughs> You'd have to say, outlook, down, get on, we're being fired. I mean, it's complete nonsense. It is such stuff as dreams are made on. Um, and Churchill made fun of it, or allegedly it was Churchill, um, who, who said, this is a kind of English upward which I will not put. Um, uh, it's uh, Similarly, uh, what were you saying, splitting infinitives, that, that's, no one even knows who thought that up. It seems to have appeared in the 1820s sometime, but... The infinitive in English is one word anyway. If you, um, it doesn't contain the preposition too. That's the preposition that often in, introduces the infinitive. So if you take the sentence, I helped him escape. Escape is infinitive there, it helps. But don't start sentences with word and. I mean, whoever thinks that hasn't read the Byron poem, and thou art dead as young and fair, as all of him, but as, uh, you know, Shakespeare started sentences with, uh, with and Byron did uh, is uh, loads of great literature does that uh, those rules don't exist. I think it's more you, know, you should definitely play with the language. Um, you shouldn't let anything stop you. But it's more um, knowing what you're doing, working out the, the the structure, and knowing that if you do use uh, a word like this, you can use a word deliberately wrongly, or you can reverse the normal word order. Um, uh, in order to create an effect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but but what about, so, I mean, I think I mentioned some very kind of, um, maybe what you would call kind of grammar rules, but what about rules that are handed down by other kind of style stylists who say things like, you know, you should try and avoid the passive, you know, things which are more kind of vague, you know, how, how do you feel about that kind of advice? I mean, there are some people who say never use an adverb. Good luck with that. <laughs> Especially it's never in that sentence is an adverb, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but sometimes just setting yourself a rule 
can uh, produce uh, interesting results. It's like there's that, um, uh, there are a couple of novels written which don't use the word E ever, which is a very hard thing to do, but, but possible. And it makes you stop and think about your language. And often it's just a question of almost of uh, having your own sense of style and sense of taste and saying, okay, for my writing, I will never use an adjective or an adverb, or, you know, I will always do this. I will never use the passive because it makes you stop all the time and have to rethink your sentences, which can, which can have very interesting results. I mean, personally, I use the passive quite a lot. And that really comes from the, uh, the George Orwell essay uh, on, on political writing, where he points out quite correctly, you often get, you get a lot of news headlines where rather than saying, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, somebody's called, uh, so you, you get a passive headline saying, the prime minister criticized, is criticized for this announcement, rather than saying who's doing the criticizing which you should do, because it turns out they're just being criticised by the, the leader of the opposition, in which case, well, obviously, it's the leader of the opposition's job to criticise the Prime Minister. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there isn't a story here, but um, uh, to say that uh, uh, people were outraged or uh, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, but there's no, there's no real problem. So in, in, in the world of kind of language learning, there's been a lot of research that shows a strong correlation between people who read a lot and their, their kind of, um, not only their language ability, but also their vocabulary size and things like that. So I'm wondering as well if, if you think that, um, you know, part of being a good writer is also being a good reader. Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, you'll get... Uh, so many ideas and just ex exposing yourself to um, the, the finer things you view uh, if you're only reading great books then and professional writing then that will become the, the, the standard in your mind whereas um, if you don't then you, you, you'll simply get a lower standard. A, a lot of students when when they're learning a language what they'll do is they'll um, spend a lot of time learning about grammar and they'll you know, they're, they're, a lot of them can be very good at doing filling in a worksheet and they can be very good at, you know, putting the correct word in, in, in the hole um, and they can be great at maybe even doing an exam. But then when it comes to, to real communication, like having a conversation, they, you know, they struggle and sometimes they have no experience with conversations. Do you want my tip on this? This is my <laughs> This is a cheat, but it, 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 I, I really do mean this. It may sound like a joke. But you should learn the filler words, the meaningless filler words in the other language. So in English, you often use a word like so, or I mean, I think, you know. That. So you can say uh, an Englishman doesn't actually talk in perfect clear English. An Englishman says, well, you know, I know that other thing is. I mean, really now, because what I'm going to say is that, that, that and it, you, you can talk for 10 seconds without saying anything. And you have the same thing. It, it, I, I always like in French. They just use the word, uh, sometimes they say on fet, but mainly it's uh, it's like, <laughs> but yes, learn, 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 learn the meaningless words, learn to um stammer in English, as it were, learn, <laughs> but 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 how do you? How do you kind of feel about the idea that that maybe right now in the world there are 
you know, millions, li you know, literally millions of students who, who, who can, who can do a worksheet but can't have a conversation. Would you, would you even describe them as as language users? Yes, yes, in a way. I mean, I, I don't have some sort of great dividing line down the <laughs> the population saying language users, not language users. That would be, uh, that would be silly. They're they're trying. I mean, I, I. To come back to my my German's pretty bad, but I I often I often like to read in German. Like I can do that, and it means I can read German literature and German poetry, and uh, it's very nice. I like those dual language textbooks. I can think across and um, if I don't understand a lot, uh, it's something I enjoy. Does it make me a brilliant German speaker? Absolutely not. I can barely hold a conversation, but it's 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 nice nonetheless. If, if people want to uh, find out more about your work, uh, if they want to buy your books, what, what's the best place for them to, uh, wh where should they go to, to do that? Uh, well, if bookshops are open, they should go to um, a, a bookshop. Otherwise, you can, um, they're all available as ebooks. They're available uh, on, as Kindle, they're available from Amazon and all similar things. And yes, as I say, Short History of Drunkenness has been translated into. Oh, about fifteen or twenty languages now. So, Breve Historia della Barcera. So, it may well be available in um, their native language, whatever that happens to be. Just before we finish up, I was wondering if, uh, because I ask everybody this, why, why do you think it is that language is important to to us as as humans? Um, because language is all of our, well, not all, but it is most of our communication. And I think something we were all noticing during this lockdown and this isolation year is the, the, the lack of connection and communication we have, that, uh, uh, which would be so lovely. And language is, is how you get on in life. Language is how you move through the world and how you tell people who you are. Well, Mark Forsyth, thank you very much for, for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.